Apache's Recovery. Welcome to Apache's Recovery Corner. This is a recovery podcast. We are here today with my friend Pat O. Nice to see you, sir. Welcome to the corner. This is a recovery podcast. We speak about all things recovery uh, or lack thereof, depending on how you roll. Um, oh, wow. Pat, so uh, usually the way this thing works is that we, we delve deep into your past. We see where you were born, where you were raised, what your upbringing was like, get into the other nitty-gritty stuff, and then talk about the recovery. So so who, who's Pat O? This, this could be good. Yeah. Th- this could be bad. <laughs> yeah, the nitty gritty might be a little weird. The nitty gritty guy. Yeah. <laughs> it could get sure. It could get a little weird, Patch. A little bit with you for sure. Yes. So tell me, what, where where were you raised? Born and raised. Born and raised, Pat Ochoa. Uh, born Mission Viejo, California, at Mission Hospital. Oh, really? Yeah, right here, Mission Viejo. Okay. Right next to the Pej's Corner. <laughs> and um, were you? It's, no, it's good. We're good. We're okay. here. See. So tell me, uh, growing up, only child, what was it like? Uh, growing up, only child, mom was uh, mom was an alcoholic. Okay. So mom mom got pregnant in a blackout. Mm-hmm. Uh, my mom was a uh, my mom didn't even know she had a master's degree until she got so years after she got sober. That's how bad of an alcoholic she was. So she was actually going to school under the influence the whole time and. Performing? Yeah. Yes. Uh, uh, a spiritual mentor of hers told her you should go back and make amends to uh, San Diego State. So she went back to San Diego State years after she got sober mm-hmm. and uh, she found out she had a, a master's degree in journalism. Wow. Yeah. So mom was an alcoholic, which meant um, she got pregnant in a blackout. And, um, and uh, yeah, so I never knew who my father was. Um, growing up as an only child, I didn't know that it was any different, mm-hmm. right? I thought, I mean, I think as only child, we only children, we think a lot. You know, I, I've always been a thinker. Mm-hmm. You know, I've always had to entertain myself. Um, you know, it was it was lonely. Um, it was. I mean, I didn't know that it was any different, but looking back in my life, it was lonely. Mm-hmm. So, and we'll get more into talking about your mom because obviously i mean i knew her and she's she's in the recovery world very well known you know you know i don't usually like to say iconic but for a lady like her i think she deserves to be she's she's a very she was a very powerful lady that helped a lot of people mm. um and so i know that uh growing up obviously you were in mission Bay, but she went to san diego state while pregnant or while she already had you so my mom I don't know. No, no, because my mom. That's before. Yeah, because my mom got sober when I was 11 months old. Uh-huh. So nine months and pregnant, right? So, no, she was already here in Santa Ana. She worked for a local uh, newspaper company. Well, that's what she did before? Yeah. Really? Yeah. What a trip. I didn't know about that. Yeah. So, in some of her stories, she talks about the reporting. I, I, there's so many versions of her story that I would hear, but I think I did hear that now that you mentioned it. Yeah. So, and then later on, she went to go work for a place called Touchstones. Um, yeah, she worked for Touchstones Adolescent Program. Which is in Orange County. Which was in Orange. Well, it was. It's not there anymore. No longer exists. But it was there for a long time. long time. 25, 26 years. Right. But she worked at Genesis at South Coast Medical Center. She mm-hmm. worked at an outpatient center in San Juan when I was a kid. That was my first job was in San Juan as the paper boy. And I'd ride my bike around her work and 
zing the papers to the mobile homes and the old people. It's kind of fun. Right. Only child kind of stuff, you know. And obviously you were exposed to the recovery world because mm -hmm. of mom already being very involved. Right. You're in meetings and things like that. Yeah. Um, so as an only child, like when did you first, uh, I mean, did you feel inadequate? Did you feel different? Yeah, I felt different my whole life. Um, is that, I mean, yeah, I felt like different my whole life. Um, didn't really connect on team sports. Mm -hmm. Always felt like the odd man out. Uh, all my friends, my little group of friends were big into skateboarding and surfing. You know, I, I, I surfed one time, fell, hit my head. I was like, I'm, You're not, never doing I'm that. not doing this again. You know what I mean? Just something about the sand and the beach and it's right. dirty and and then my friends would skateboard and I couldn't downhill standing up and I would sit down. Right. So I was always like fearful, like wouldn't, wouldn't take any risks, mm -hmm. wouldn't push myself. If, if I, if I had a little hangnail, you know, a little broken nail, I'm like, I'm done. I'm not doing this anymore. Right. You know? Um, yeah. It's always. And this emptiness was also uh, there because of not knowing who your dad was. I mean, were you asking your mom at a young age, like who, who's my dad? So I was always afraid to ask um, like where my dad was. I was always afraid. And I don't know if it was like afraid to get answers, you know, if it was what it was, but I wouldn't ask. Um, I had this idea that I think that adults should tell you, you yeah. know, what, you know, they should tell you what's going on. Um, I would make up stories about my dad to my friends because mm -hmm. I was embarrassed that, you know, they had mom and dad and I only had a mom. I wouldn't bring kids over to my house when I was a kid because I didn't have a dad situation. So what would you say? Like my dad, this and that, or pretend of, like you had one? One of the lies I would tell that came out years after I got sober was that my dad lived in South America and, and he had this huge piece of property hundreds and hundreds of acres and he raised just many different uh, exotic animals mm -hmm. you know and then people were like oh my god your dad's so cool and i was like oh yeah you got a cool dad you know yeah um you know but nobody ever saw this dad you know how people would say people would always say like my dad will beat you beat you beat up, up your dad yeah, yeah. yeah so i had to make up a dad of course yeah. all right and um so were you scholastic? Were you athletic? Any of that? Not athletic. No, not for sure. I'm a right fielder in the baseball team. So, and I and I was I I played soccer, but they ran too much, so I was over that sport. You know, mm -hmm. I got resentful at the team mom because she only gave me a quarter of a orange. You know what I mean? And the other kids got more, and I felt like it was because I wasn't good at sports. But um, not athletic. Um, and educationally. Uh, I think I was more like interested in trying to like, I learned as a little kid, like if I can make you laugh, then you would like me. Right. Right. So I was like a class clown. Okay. I, I will always, uh, you know, make fun of people. Mm -hmm. um, today, I guess you'd be called a bully, you know, but I was a little guy. Right. So right. I don't, I wasn't like bully in the sense that I would threaten people, but I would pick on people. A lot. And the, then, the easy target. And then I would get, you know, Corey and Sean and laugh, you know, uh, and then yeah. I, I was like, you know, in the right. game, I felt connected. Mm -hmm. So I was, uh, I was at the principal's office a lot, Right. you know, I was on, you know, couldn't go to recess, had to sit there and, you know, read a book, which I didn't do, but 
Um, How is this affecting your mom? Was she upset? Was she trying to redirect you or? So at elementary school, like it wasn't really a big deal. Right. You know? um, I had uh, what, what, what uh, parent-teacher conferences and yeah. stuff like that, but it didn't really, there wasn't really anything my mom said then. Come junior high, I would get a lot of detentions and stuff like that. And my mom would, you know, make up excuses for me. She'd say, well, he has a learning disability, you know, and she would make up these lies to the, well, I, they were lies because they didn't have anything diagnosed. Mm -hmm. And then I would pick up on those things and I would say, yeah, it's because of my ADHD. You know, yeah. Though I didn't take Ritalin or nothing. I mean, yes. That would have been exciting. It's seventh <laughs> grade, zing, you know. Yeah. But, um, and then, so by the time I got to high school, mm -hmm. um, you know, my freshman year, I had enough Saturday schools and detentions to last the whole year when I was at Dana Hills and Dana Point. Right. And uh, I ended up moving with a friend. My freshman year hit my best friend at the time. His family moved to Grass Valley, California. Mm -hmm. And at that point, like I wanted a I wanted a family like system. You know, it's just my mom. She was actively involved, you know, work all the time in the recovery community. Mm -hmm. So she was never really home. And so I had a lot of freedom and I, I felt like if I had a mom and dad family unit, then right. I, I would be like be successful. Right. Cause mm -hmm. I wanted to be do good, but I just didn't, couldn't do it. I felt like I was doing it on my own. This was like the seventh or eighth grade, ninth grade, ninth grade. So I got kicked out of Dana Hills, had no Saturday schools intentions to last the whole year. And then I went to grass Valley and his parents were very, I would say strict. They weren't really strict. They just had expectations. Right. And then once you met the expectations, then you could go out. So every day after school, we'd have to come home, do our homework. We had to maintain a, a, a like four A's and two B's mm -hmm. average in your classes. And then we could, you know, they bought us, they had motorcycles and all kinds of cool toys and things. So now you finally had a sense of family. Yes. And yeah. with a sense of family and structure, uh -huh. Uh, I got straight A's that year. And um, and your mom was okay with you going to school? Yeah, yeah my mom was like, yeah, you you can go. If this is going to help you, why not? Because yeah. I'm not available for you all the time. And I don't know if she didn't say that to me, but that's it would assume to be yes, so, right? Yeah. yeah. So I ended up getting straight A's that year. Right. Um, but I was smoking a lot of weed that year. Oh, this is what I wanted to ask you. Say, so how did you get turned on to anything? What was your first time of first drink was nine? Okay, there were some kids. They were fourteen. Uh -huh. They had a bottle of tequila, right? And I was like, I wanted some friends. You know? right. I was like, if I drink that tequila, then I mean, tequila is no soft drink. That's disgusting. Being that young, no, it's being fifty. It's gross. Yeah, right, 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 right. <laughs> so I, I was gross. I spit out, and then right in front of them, right in front of them, and then I was like. Right, that fear, just like you're. Did they laugh? You're an idiot. Uh, I don't know if they laughed, but I knew that they laughed. At yeah, me. you know what I mean. If they weren't laughing on the outside, they were they're laughing on the inside. You idiot. Yeah, yeah. You know, so. It's so then I just I drank it again, only because of all this, and I, and I held it down that day, and I didn't get drunk. But like, what happened in it for me was like, those kids were all about me. Right. You know what I mean? They high five, and I was like, I never felt that before right. from, from anyone. You're finally a part of. Yeah. Right. But 11, I smoked my first hit of weed. And that was like where I really, really was like, dude, this is where it's at. You know? Were you scared when you did that? Did it did it go um, down the wrong way, down the wrong pipe? I was, I was scared. Um, I was scared, but 
one like I want to be accepted. You yeah. Know? And once you did it, once I did it, a lot of people say they didn't get high the first time. I I was high. So I I was like laughing and um, just yeah. you know when that shit burns the back of your throat, you're gonna get high. Yeah, I, I coughed. Yeah. There was nothing bad about it. You know what I mean? But the kid that gave it to us, he did mushrooms. So immediately, right? I was like, if you do mushrooms, you're bad. Right. You know what I'm saying? That's the thought. You Weed's have. cool, but mushrooms, that guy's bad, right? Because he, he does mushrooms. So how long after did it take until you started doing mushrooms? Oh, or did you man. do any, anything heavier? I didn't do mushrooms until I was in high school. Okay. Yeah. So the weed became a daily thing? When, weed when became as often as somebody had, had it around me. Around me Correct. You know, and I was no longer scared of it. Yeah. Right? I was like, yeah, where's that at? And then I went to so my mom. When I was a kid, I was in, would go to the YMCA. Right. I go to summer camp for the week. I would do the after school, like the summer program mm-hmm. here at, in, at Laguna Niguel. Right. At the, at the YMCA over there. And then at 14, I became a counselor in training. Mm-hmm. So I would work with a counselor. But I was 14. They were like 19, 20. Right. And they would have parties. And so they would invite me over to their parties. Nice. And then they Perfect. would give me free booze, man. And I got a nickname Puck because I passed out and threw up. I was all green. And they put this sign and took a Polaroid picture of Puck, you know. But, like, I didn't care. You know I mean? They were, like, all about it. They were, right. like, fuck, Yes. So. It's interesting. Like, I've heard your story so many times in, in that one community, yeah. which I don't really like to name it unless you name it. I'm not naming it. Okay, good. Uh, but when I hear this version, like it's more detailed. Yeah. Yeah, ask away. Okay, so so then um, now you're partying with these counselors, Yeah, people that are already underage, and then you're super underage. Yeah, but what's happening is, is they party on Friday and Saturday, right? Mm-hmm. Maybe, but I'm like already after I got drunk with those guys, I'm like, when are we doing this? And I would like already start manipulating everyone. Mm. Right. Like, I mean, we got to the point where I manipulated them to drink at a, at a YMCA overnighter where we were watching kids and we snuck out, got bottles and we went to the van and we, it was in San Diego and we were drinking and we got annihilated drunk. Right. And the director was like, caught us. And now you're in trouble. I wasn't in trouble. They, they were because they, they were, were older. Yeah, they were the responsible people. ones. And but I was already doing that early on. I was already like masterminding to get alcohol and drugs. And you're at the time you were still living with that family, or no? I have moved, so I, I was only there my freshman year, and then I moved back my sophomore year. And my back mom, to moms. Yeah, my mom had moved in with uh, her girlfriend Cindy. Uh, part of the reason why I. Um, part of the reason why I wanted to move was because when I was about 12 years old, my mom had a girlfriend. Now my mom never had a conversation with me ever that she was lesbian. Mm-hmm. And when I was 12 years old, because she helped a lot of women, we had a lot of women around. Right. And so, um, I just didn't think anything of it. I didn't know about gay or anything like that back then, mm-hmm. like, except kids would call you gay, but like, and it was bad. Right. So I, this woman took me skiing, taught me how to go skiing, and uh, she took me for like five days. And when we came back, and she used to watch me on the weekends all the time, and mm-hmm. and uh, and I came back, and I was probably a little attitude, and she smacked me. Your mom? No, this woman. The woman. And I was like eighth grade, end of eighth grade, right before I moved to that family. And my mom ended up leaving that girl, that lady, mm-hmm. and then I moved with that family, and I came back, and. 
Cindy, my mom's girlfriend for, you know, however, 20 plus years. Yeah. She started coming into the picture and I start, had an idea. And then when I moved, I came back, my mom and Cindy had bought a house in Mission Viejo. Mm -hmm. And they were in one room and I was in a diff other end at a different room. Right. And so there was some deep resentment starting to occur in, in my life at that point. Um, when I came back wanting a relationship with my mom and then my mom was with this other woman. Right. Mm. And I was a sophomore in high school and it just was all bad, man. It was like the reason, the loneliness, the sense of connection with my peers and the people around me was so important. Mm -hmm. And then this deep resentment, it was like, I just threw the middle fingers up and, um, yeah, I mean, I ended up like having a knife going out down the hall at Cindy, and like it was lots of anger, lots of anger, lots of anger. So, at this point, uh, how old were you at this time? Sophomore high school, so 15 ish. NWA, Ice Cube yeah. started coming. Got to represent the hood. Dude, the fifth size 50 dickies, right, right. you know? There's a lot of identities, like you don't know your identity, no. so you're trying to fit in with like the music that we listened to That's and everything right. at the time. That's right. Uh, so hanging out with people, skate parks, people that, that are partying, things like that? I met a kid, my best friend in high school, Pat. I met Pat. With one T? Pat with one T, okay. and I'm Pat with two T's yeah. since the sixth grade. It's not my how I originally spelled it. Okay, name. yeah, you added some. Yeah, it's, yeah. And, uh, and so I met Pat, and uh, Pat lived in the same neighborhood as me, and he lived with his mom and dad. and uh, Yeah, and so. Was it good times back then? Oh, fuck, the best times of my life. I mean, you were a Southern California kid, you uh, know. It was the life. It was the 90s culture, eight, end of 80s, 90s yeah. culture. Right. Chicano, hip hop, yeah. skating. Right. Uh, it was. Uh, I was over in Costa Mesa. Cruising, that time. It cruising was good, on good Bristol. Times. Yep. You know, low rider cars, low rider trucks, mm -hmm. you know, hydraulics, you know, bed dancing trucks, right. building systems. Those were good times. Best times of my life. Really good times. Yeah. Well, I wouldn't say best because then a few years later, the rave scene came. The rave scene came. But it was good. It was innocent, fun. Yes. It was. Yeah. Yeah. It was, yeah. You know, I don't want to say the best, but it was innocent fun. Right. I mean, there was. I remember all the truck clubs and the bike clubs yeah. and all, all the stuff that they had. Yeah, there was nothing. We were doing what was normal. Sure. You know, at least the people I was hanging out with. Same. Yeah. I remember those times. Yeah. So then um, there's turmoil within the house. Mm -hmm. uh, your relationship with your mom is somewhat tumultuous. I wouldn't say tumultuous. It was just we never talked. Oh, you weren't even arguing or fighting? Um, I would have attitude. What I've come to learn yeah. after having making amends with Cindy and having a relationship with her, I would start to have attitude towards my mom. Mm -hmm. Where one time me and my mom, I guess, wrestled my mom and wrestled down the ground. Then you can't remember that? I don't remember it. I don't, I don't have any recollection of it. Right. It's a story I've been told after. And, you know, I um, I just didn't care, man. I was like, I stopped going to school educationally. I mean, I sat in all my classes. Right. But I was there, you know, for a girlfriend. I was there to collect, you know, to get, you know, money for beers after school. Just like 15, 16, 17. 17 yeah. yeah. I was started selling weed. Um, you know, I was, I always, I was a kid with LSD. Mm -hmm. You know, I always had LSD. Um, How were you getting LSD? Just friends at school at first. Yeah. You know, 
Um, there's a guy named Oatmeal. Do you know? Oat, did you know Oatmeal? I don't know. Oh man. man, he would meet us. He would meet us at like a, I don't know, dude, gas station, mm-hmm. and he would pull up in a scooter, and he would open up a comic magazine, right. just standing right there with everybody, and just a book. He's like, bro, you know, I'm about to buy a hundred hits of acid, right. sheet acid, you know what I mean, or ten pack, and you just here you go, like nice. them. Yeah, <laughs> no, Oatmeal's a trip, but like you know, and uh, yeah, I mean it was. Frying on acid, cruising, you know, drinking every day, pretty much every day in high school, smoking weed every day in high school, eating mushrooms, eating LSD. Uh, my girlfriend, EO, uh, she did met speed when I was 16. And mm-hmm. I was like, dude, we don't do speed. You know what I mean? Like cocaine's cool, but we yeah. don't do speed. Yeah. It would sell cocaine for for San Juan, for the Cholos down in San There was Juan. lots of coke around back then. A lot then. of coke. And, yeah. But I was like, I looked down upon meth. You know what I mean? In the beginning, so did I. I actually tried meth. That when I was into coke, I tried meth. I'm like, this is too much. Yeah. But then later on, it well, totally changed. What happened for me was I was like, we don't do meth. You know, yes. we do coke. We don't do meth. It's yeah. lower than meth less. Is dirty. Meth yes. is a dirty drug for dirty drugs. And then drug she was addict. like, just try it, Pat. Yeah. And gave me a line. I was like, I was like, what's that going to do? Right. So I smelled like burned so bad. And I was, we talked for like 24 hours and I was like, let's do this again. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that <laughs> the addiction that just instantaneously, yep. you know, you could stay up. And then that's, that's where I start, you know, when I found the rape scene, you know, my okay, mom so kicked me out at 17. At 17. Did you finish high school on time? Then finish high school and getting a GED when I was 21 later. Okay. So she kicked you out. Why? But, well, I thought she kicked me out. Right. But I came home one night, you know, blacked out like I always am, you know. I mean, just train wreck, partying. And she told me, she's like, you can stay here and be sober or go out there and get loaded, but you need to make a choice. But I heard her tell me I was kicked out of the house. Okay. And I don't I didn't know that that's what she told me until I got sober years after when me and my mom were speaking together. Mm-hmm. Right. And I told my story and she told her story. And we got to see the different perspectives, right? Right. right. And she would always say hers was right because she was sober. Right. But that's the thing with perspective is my perspective is all I know. Right? Yeah. And your perspective is all you know. You're absolutely. And you're right. And I'm right. This is so coincidental that you're bringing this up yes. because I was at a place speaking and your mom was there and my mom was there. Crazy. And after I was done telling my story, I went up and my mom. I told my mom, like, did you like it? And she said, there's a lot of things that aren't right about what you talked about. I'm like, what the hell? Seriously? I was exactly. there. I remember this shit. She's exactly. Like, no, that's different. Much different perspective. Yes. Right. And and so that then that was the real resentment. Like, you're gonna kick me out. Like, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Like now the guns are blazing. I didn't call her for a year and a half because I was gonna punish her. I punished her. Well, she kicked you out. Where'd you go? I went to Pat's house and my best friend. Right. And, and he snuck me in his bedroom. Oh, you secretly I would have to like, sneak through his bedroom window yeah and then uh and then uh my mom uh that guy ended up getting she got me a, a hornet mm-hmm. i was got me a hornet i was 18 now and then i traded it because pat's mom and dad were like he can't stay anymore and then i was in with eo my girlfriend that's right i was in with eo my girlfriend yeah and then her dad picked her up and moved them to austin i had no idea i went there one day they were gone so i traded the haunt the the the, uh, the uh hornet in for a 69 chevy van Mm-hmm. trade it from a guy and then i lived in my van and at this time i'm going to raves at 17 i get kicked out i went to my first rave uh it was an after hours called what in south central friday night it was an after hours party in south central los angeles 
a white boy from uh, Orange was it off County. MLK? Something like that. Yeah. And uh, white boy from Orange County and uh, high in LSD, mm -hmm. you know, drinking and it was dark. It was scary. And uh, and I walked in and I was met with so much love. Mm -hmm. People were like embraced, you know. Those, come, were, those come, were good times. Took us, took me right up to the front. It was a huge wall of speakers, man. Yes. They were handing out free ecstasy and free and everyone. I was handing out acid and ecstasy pills and nitrous balloons. Right. And the bass and the rhythm and everybody was jumping unison. Yeah. And I never felt more at home in my, my entire life. The community. That, that was a good era. Yeah. And I remember you and I, we've talked about this before. When, when I met you in sobriety, uh, after we compared notes, we were probably in the same places because a lot of the names, the flammable liquids, yes. the what's, the yeah. coconut teasers, the coconut all those teasers. places. It, we Soren's house. Yeah. You know, oh, yeah. You know what yeah. I mean? All Was these, that a house? I mean, his flash, if you will. <laughs> Just spinning records. We yeah. were in the same Huntington Beach. Yeah. Right? All the different places that we were at, but I don't, I'm sure we probably That's were, right. were hanging out in the same room, but right. didn't really know who each other were. Right. But I do remember. It was late 88, 89, where there was some stuff going on in Westwood. And it was those underground parties, like just the, the good ones. Like yeah. where you, you had to know someone to be able to get there. You'd have to go to one spot. There was no internet or nothing no. like that. You go to one spot, somebody give you a piece of paper with an address, and you drive all the way to the valley. That's right. And then they give you another piece of paper, and then you go over to Pasadena. Yeah. And then finally you end up back in Westwood, and there, then you get in there, and there's the speakers, yeah. all of the way it was set up. Yeah. And it was illegal. It's illegal. Sometimes it's illegal. It's illegal. Sometimes it's in the club, right? But I remember that feeling like where people were, there was just this togetherness. Mm -hmm. There was no, there wasn't people drinking. There was no bar fights. There was nothing like that. People were doing fucking ecstasy, right. acid, candy flipping. And yeah. just, it was all love. And loving one another. Loving one another. That's right. Yeah. It was all ego out the door, right? It was, it was, totally. and there was everybody there was from, from what we call trans now, right? To his, I remember, I remember dancing. I had my eyes closed and I remember opening my eyes and there was a cholo straight up Pendleton one button just ole, you know what I mean? Yeah. Then there was like a you know two gay guys here and, yeah. and, and hot girl here, you know, yeah, and yeah. just like Persian and what everybody every all types together yes. and, and there was no color lines, right? There was yeah. no sexual identity lines. There mm -hmm. was everybody was in it together, right? right? And I and all of my problems, homeless. No mom, no dad, and I walked in there, and all that was left out the door. As it didn't even, what didn't, wasn't even reality. Mm -hmm. And this became my reality, and and my identity, and my people, and my tribe. But, and it was like the next one to the next one to the next one to the next one. Um, and 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 I don't want to say that that eh, it was definitely a peak because we I was we were going to Seattle. Portland, Oregon. So wait, San you were Francisco. living out of your van and cruising yeah, around? Yeah, cruising around. And, um, you know, and it was like all these states and cities and just meeting new Carrie just wrote plur. And try, yeah, <laughs> that's right. And tribes, right. The different tribes. And uh, it was the peak. It was the like the, was that, that point, man, when it was like it couldn't get any better. It couldn't get, I couldn't get any higher and I couldn't get any more connected and I couldn't get, Right. And then the next morning, 
it started to feel the depression. Because of the type of drugs that you were doing or because of life? I think it was the, to be honest with you, it was the drugs because right. my life wasn't getting any worse. Right. Right. I was living out my van. I sure. was selling drugs to make money. Uh, we were going from here to there. Like, it was I mean, definitely the ecstasy will, will deplete the serotonin in, yeah. in, in your spine. You start to get depressed. You start getting depressed. Usually the next day is the, the come down day, but it's the following day where you're like in full on suicidal ideation right. mode. And right. I, why am I doing I mean, this? We would, we would pull in Sunday morning. Right. And, Dude, pull in the house and couldn't wait till 10 a.m. for the nitrous for the for the speed shop to open. Right. And we'd haul the Santa Ana, drop the tank off, uh -huh. drinking beers, right? Yeah. Drop the tank off, call for the heroin connect, right? And this is where it started getting dark, right? Because right. then the heroin, we'd wait, the heroin connect would come in Santa Ana, an hour later, pick up the tank, and then we would suck nitrous all the way from Santa Ana back to Huntington. Mm -hmm. One time that my get my car ran out of gas, my truck. I had no concept that we were, had even had gas in the car was so high and on nitrous oxide right. where my friend got out with two balloons trying to wave cars down as I'm filling two balloons so that I can start waving cars and he could fill. You know what I mean? It was like crazy. And obviously at this time, by this time, there was no discrimination of what kind of drugs you were going to no. do. You'd do anything. Anything. Ketamine out. Did one time. Yeah. I was high. I was can't. Uh, Candy flipping. Yeah. So I was on ecstasy. I was on LSD going into the party, drinking, right? Did some meth, did a couple bumps of ketamine. Mm -hmm. I walk into the bathroom and these cholos are smoking a joint. They're like, Hey, you want some homes? I'm like, Yeah. <laughs> took a big hit. Things started going. And they're like, Take another one. Took another one, bro. It sure. It was sure, right? Yeah. And it felt like my feet were like freaking like a cement blocks. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> and then all of a sudden I'm in the in the middle of the warehouse and it's just like whoa, well, you know, no, yeah. no care in the world what you're putting in your body, you know. Um, and then you know, yeah, no care, no care where you're at, no care for nothing. Next morning you start feeling depressed, and then you gotta do more to mm -hmm. not feel depressed. And how long were you on this journey? I mean, were you not talking to your mom at all during this time? So my relationship with my mom, uh was only if I needed money, really, you know. And she'd send it. She'd send it, man. She'd wire me 150 bucks probably every week for eight years. So you do I would, stuff I would be years. in Orange County, ten miles from where she is, and I would tell her I was in San Francisco because that's where she thought I was living. But I'd already come down to Orange County. And then she would get a call that I was back in jail. Collect, hey, I'm back in jail. And she would come see me, and she'd be like, "Dude, what are you doing?" You know, like. And I'm okay this time. I'm gonna get sober. I'm gonna get out of jail. Things are gonna be different. I promise, mom. So talk of sobriety was already coming up sometimes. Yeah, it was coming up because, because that that was her expectation of you in the first place. That if you stay in this house, you got to be sober. But if you want to go out and do what you're doing, and I could pull it together. Yeah, I mean, I I went to Sarah when I was 21. I went to San Francisco. I'm not gonna drink nothing, man. And I and I got this apartment. They helped me get an apartment, and it was in the tenderloin. You know, what I'm saying, well, we didn't know that. But anyway, so. I, and I make it like 60 days, right? And I'm like, all of a sudden, I'm like, dude, you deserve a beer. You were trying to stay sober. At periods of time, I could pull it together. Yeah. Because I knew, like, you can't do acid and go to work. <laughs> Absolutely not. Yeah. But I had become a counselor at camp. Mm -hmm. I had become a, a, a director at YMCA camp. I was running a whole boy's side of camp. Mm -hmm. And I was drinking and doing drugs. And that was when it was working. 
You know, that's when there was no consequences. Sure. No, I got kicked out of the house, but there was no like. It hadn't caught up to you yet. Yeah, it yeah. hadn't caught yeah. up to me yet. Yeah. And where it caught up to me was when I was I was working at at the at a, in San Francisco. I got a job because I could pull it together and I could turn it on and I could get work, but I couldn't maintain it. Right. Hmm. And I was sober and I had a bright idea and I called the connect and he brought me heroin to the elementary school I was the assistant director at. What a drug to do with like psychedelics and things floating around like yeah. heroin. Yeah. That does that's when it does get dark. That's the darkest. The man's your your days are done. You think sure. about all the musicians that died, you know. Yeah, yeah. Heroin overdose. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now fentanyl, but you know, so like I I came I fucking nodded out in the bathroom of the elementary school and the director found me there. Mm. She's like, dude, you're fired, dude. You know what I mean? And that's like, that was 25, man. And that was like, that was the turning point, dude. Because it was like the only good thing that in my life, right? It was like the only good thing where I could pull it together and get it was gone, right? Mm -hmm. It was like so much shame that I put elementary school kids in harm, mm -hmm. right? Could have kid could have found me with a needle in my arm, overdose. I mean, yeah. a lot of things. And uh, that's when I called mom. I was like, any good treatment, you know? Ah. ah, and you're 25 at that time. 25. Went to treatment. For how long? Good old treatment. 28 days. Betty Ford. <laughs> the good old BF. The good old days. Betty Ford, 28-day medical model. Right. You know, with no education. I had gotten a GD when I was 21, and I, I, I was terrified of what other people thought of me. Mm -hmm. I had no education. And when you come at someone like me with that medical model – it's just a lot of big words, right? It's a lot of like, but I'm a people pleaser, man. And I just buy, yeah. And I play the game. So you didn't, when you got out of there after 28 days, then what? I wasn't going to do drugs. You had, you've been convinced of that. Convinced drugs were definitely a problem, right? Cause heroin is what brought me to treatment. Okay. Not the fact that I've been drinking since I was, 12 to 14 when I started drinking every day. But that's not your problem. No, no, no. It's the drugs. Alcohol. Yeah. It's the drugs. Okay. So then you got out and how long after did you drink? Uh, well, I was going to sober living in Hawaii because my girlfriend I met in treatment. Well, you met a girl in treatment. Oh, yes. We were fucked. We were in Lovely. love. We were in love. <laughs> Dude, you know, in love. Match made in heaven. Yeah. We never talked. We fell in love writing notes. Oh, yes. Yes. It was the eyes. It was the eyes. I just got to have conversations. It's like that lady right there. I was like, oh. <laughs> you know what I'm yeah. I fell right in. Perfect. Snake charmer. Right. All right. Well, anyways. But yeah, so I, <laughs> she wanted to go to Hawaii. I said, okay. And I got on the plane and I, well, I went to a couple clubs, like house clubs, mm -hmm. sober, grinding, like, I'm not going to drink. I'm going to do this shit. And it wasn't any fun trying to like white knuckle it. Yeah. And I got on the plane and the flight attendant was like, Hey, do you want something to drink? And I was like, well, yeah, Heineken, like no thought <laughs> you're going to sober living to be with your sober girlfriend to live this Have sober life before you go. Just like that. Right. Heineken. How many did you have on the plane? I don't know, 12 or 13 on the plane. They allowed you. Yeah. And then you Kept got drinking. Did you get, did you go to sober living when you got there? <laughs> uh, well, I got off the plane and I was like, I don't think so. I don't think so. Would you go to Duke's? I went to the bar. <laughs> I went to the bar and I ordered another, I ordered more beer. And then like I wasn't gonna do heroin, but ice. I never did ice before. Mm. Did meth. There's that's what was in Hawaii. Did meth. It was yeah. ice. Yeah, it was crying. It was cracking, dude. It was yeah. I had been smoking crack too. We didn't talk about the crack stories, but 
But like, I, like this, when I was at this club and, and this lady's like, hey, you want to do a bump of ice? And I was like, yeah. <laughs> Forgot that I said I wasn't going to do drugs. Yeah. I mean, I was like, yeah. You're in Hawaii. Like, Come on, man. And, and this girl, I forgot about my girlfriend, but this other girl. Oh. I was like, yeah. Did, a, did some ice. And I was like, whoa, bro, this is like the real deal. This is the real deal. And then, um, yeah, I just was homeless in Hawaii. And uh, never, the girlfriend from treatment never came. And uh, she ended up overdosing and dying, and I, I never saw her again. But mm-hmm. uh, yes, diseases. So horrible. You were homeless there for how long? A few months, and then I got mom. Mom, mom went. To, mom started to get some support around enabling me. Mm-hmm. So she stopped sending. She was the, getting educated. She was getting educated, and they stopped. That money stopped coming. You know, and right. that sucked. You know, I don't think I have a like a drinking or drug. I got a money problem. Right. If I had enough money in the world, I would I have stopped. I don't know. Mm-hmm. But the money stopped coming and then I so I, I got a plane ticket back to LA and then went straight to Skid Row. Not on purpose. Um not on purpose. I, I um I came to LA and uh I would I would go to West Hollywood and then flirt with men to get alcohol, enough alcohol and drugs in my body. And okay. I don't know where I picked that up idea from, but I think the drugs will sometimes change your thought process. Meth might do that too. I mean, I remember I was, I've seen it done with cocaine too. Do we pull, we pulled by mm-hmm. the first. So I, I was like a walker. I'd walk a lot. Right. And at this time I would pick flowers from people's gardens and I'd make these flower bouquets. I was tweaking. Right. And, uh, and we'd do some other things that I don't want to talk about on the live right. thing. It might come back and get me, but you know, things to do that, you know, anyway, so on the computer and stuff, you know. Right, right. But I would um any good I was else? hanging out with this with this um beautiful woman. Well, she was birthed a man, but she was a beautiful woman, and um I came out as we went by that convincing, huh? Very convincing. <laughs> we went and I knew she was a man, you know. What I mean, we were friends, right? We were friends. I mean, there's not no no sexual nothing, and um the powerhouse that's on La Brea and uh, Hollywood. Mm-hmm. We went by there yesterday, and I remember coming out of a blackout, making out with my friend. You know, and that was like it started getting weird at that point. You know, right. it started the the sexual deviant started to shift. Um, I started to. She was like, "You can get free booze and drugs," and so I just kind of followed her lead and would get us stuff. And a lot of times, like, I could pull it off, you know what I mean? But sometimes I would overshoot the mark, and, you know, I started to get sexually assaulted at this time in my life. Um, you know, I started to put myself into high-risk situations mm-hmm. um, for methamphetamine and crack cocaine. Um, I hadn't done heroin yet because um, I didn't want to have to kick. Well, you knew. I knew. I knew it was coming. And so I started running around Hollywood, you know, and um, – and then ended up in Skid Row. It just gradually moved its way to Skid Row. I needed to get needles. Yeah. And somebody told me that if I could if I could go down, down there, like downtown, downtown, you can get needles. And so I got on the bus and I went downtown to get needles. And sure enough, homeless dude had a box and sold me some needles. And I was like, hey, can you you know get some crack cocaine? He's like, yeah. So went a couple more blocks, went into a cardboard where it's cardboard box in a tent and but, went in there and bought some crack and they Guy gave me a pipe, fired it up, man, and uh, I don't think I left that tent for for you know for a while for a while, you know, and um, you know, and just get, you know, 
crack cocaine and meth and it would just bounce from West Hollywood to Skid Row and just bounce back and forth. And mm -hmm. I uh, called my an ex-girlfriend of mine who lived well, in Where were you staying at this time? On the streets. Not the van anymore. No, the van's the van was long gone. Way gone. That van was gone. And when you say on the streets, was it in a tent on the street itself, motels, so people's I would, houses? I would party in a tent and I would party in a in a at this time in my in my I would party in a tent or a cardboard box-ish area. Mm-hmm. And then my goal would be to do enough drugs to walk at night because I was so scared of falling asleep at nighttime. Mm -hmm. And then I would find somewhere, a park, a grass nook, somewhere where I could sleep during, if I was going to fall asleep, sleep during the day because it was safer for me. Mm -hmm. um, and it basically just sleep wherever I could, you know. Um, sometimes I like to go on the trains Right and fall asleep on the train. A little comfortable, more comfortable than a bus. Well, and it was safer. Yeah, you know, and you could just fall asleep, and you just wake up and come to. Go, wow, I'm on this part, part of town. How did I end with Long Beach? But what would suck was when you're doing heroin, and your connects all the way across town. You come to dope sick. You know that that would suck. That sucks. So, you know, yeah. So I just that's kind of like the the end of the end. Really was like just. You know, the 12th sexual assault, three days before I got sober. Um, sober, sober for good? Yeah. On the t I got sober on the 23rd, 2002 of October. Mm -hmm. On the 20th when I came to, it's like for the 12th time, and I was like, I hate it. I, I was like, I can't do this anymore. 27 years old at the time? 27. Couldn't do it anymore, man. I was like, I'm done. Right? I'm done. And uh, that inner thought, right, that was like, Pine of tequila make everything all right. I'm done. I'm telling myself, you're done. Like I did in that I surrendered. And then that thought, man. And I was at the liquor store and it was 5:30 in the morning. And it was terror. It was like just madness, man. The, the demons and the voices were so loud. But just you know, talk about anxiety. I'm talking about like vibrating literally out of my skin, like just fucking screaming. No. Yeah. And it was 5:30 in the morning. And uh 30 minutes of just terror. And then that liquor store opened. I got that pint of tequila and that first gulp, man, all of a sudden, right? It was like that fierce determination came back. Mm -hmm. And this time I was going to get a job. And this time I was going to go to school. And this time I was going to do all it right. And I started making the Planning. plan. The plan. Yeah. And I meant the plan. I knew I was going to do the plan. Right. But that first drink told me to take the second drink. I took that second drink. And then I blacked out for three days. And then when I came to three days later, I was trying to get in the Salvation Army program. And um, here in Anaheim, and I, I, I was told that I was that I was on the stairs for two days fighting to get in. They're like, you have to pee clean. And I couldn't, well, you couldn't even remember being on those stairs. No, I couldn't pee clean. And. Um, and so. And I came to on, on Ball and Harbor. There's a, I don't know, it's a different, it's a motel right behind that mobile gas station. Mm -hmm. And I came to and I was like, that's it. And I called my mom and I was like, I need help. Like, I can't do this anymore. And she didn't come help me, man. She's like, I'm done helping you. Now she was armed with facts. She was armed <laughs> with it all. Yeah. Yeah. But changed my life, man. She sent two goofy dudes to pick me up and, and uh, my life changed that day. And I, and I believe my surrender happen because how many times did i say i'm done right how many times did i say this time right how many times how many times and 
the surrender for me was I asked for help and then I took the first direction, which was getting the car. And they took you to detox, not, but not a regular no treatment center. Not let me have your insurance card detox. Yes. Yeah, it was a house. And uh you know, as Earl would say, ride the cot, right? Yeah. It's dry out, dude. It, it dry out, bro. It's effing brutal. There's dude. no there's no comfort meds in this process. No mat going on. Yeah, yeah. No suboxone. No, not even some GABAs, you know. Nothing, nothing no, allowed. Not even nauseous medicine. Right, there's no meds allowed. Here's some Pepto-Bismol. Right. That might help, you know what I mean? So nothing. you went through the indigent home where sometimes people seize up and they just call 911. Otherwise, you just have to, like, write it out. I remember me and this guy went to went there. We got there the same day, man. And um, that guy that dropped me off there, man, he just – he talked about alcoholism and addiction in a way that I could hear it, dude. I, I mean, I heard it loud and clear. Mm -hmm. I couldn't deny that I did not, like there was not one drug or alcohol that was going to make it any better. Like I admitted to better myself and he was just talking to me all the time. And, and he, he was big about your thinking is your problem. Mm -hmm. Drugs and alcohol aren't a problem. Your thinking is the problem. Right. And I, and, and I'm glad I'm grateful for that guy. But I was sitting there that day one with that guy that I came in with on the couch. And I was just like, fuck, oh, dude, cold and just like, I want to die, bro. I wanted to die. Like, I didn't want, I want to die. And this guy sitting next to me went into a seizure. He went down the ground, just doing the, doing the thing. And I was like, I was frozen, man. I couldn't, I couldn't like help the guy. I didn't, and, and they kind of just pushed off some chairs and let him just finish his deal, ride yeah. it out. And he died. He died, man. Day one, he died right there. Bro. And the paramedics came. They tell you, and I was like, and, and I believe, I believe was a spiritual experience, right? I literally watched a man die of alcoholism and addiction. And I was like, that could be me. That's a fucking wake up call. That could be me. Like, it wasn't like, hey, bro, we had that guy die. You know yeah. what I mean? Oh, oh hey, John. Our no, it's right friend. in front of you. Yeah, right in front of me. And it wasn't an overdose death. It was a guy who was trying to get sober. Yes. Right? Like, I know you can die of fentanyl, right? You yeah. put drugs in your body, you're going to die. But I didn't know you could die detoxing. Right. I thought you detoxing, you're good. Right. And he was just a straight boozer. He wasn't an – he was just alcohol. And that's what a lot of people don't know, that if you're not medically detoxed from – you know, benzodiazepines yep. or alcohol, you yep. can seize up and you can die. And, and that's what happened. And he died. And I, and I was like, dude, if I like that could, that's me, that's me, you know? And I, it was a huge thing in my life, what in a surrender for me where I was like, man, I can't do this anymore. Like, so do you think that's the point where you like, where you made that decision that no, I'm just going forward. I'm not going backwards anymore. No, my decision was right after that. Cause I had to shower in six months. Like I was just, Dirty, oh, bro. I, I, would, I would go into a store and take my socks off, yeah, and put new socks on just because it. And I leave the old ones there, or boxers. You know, what I mean, steal shit, put new drawers on. Mm -hmm. But like, um, was the the guy that took me there told me I had to take a shower, you know, and I was like, 
how did he know? You know what I mean? Like, I, I was like, delete. Like, I thought that someone else peed the cushion, not the fact that I probably pissed my pants. Yeah. And I went and I, like, I had trusted that guy mm-hmm. to take his direction. And, uh, and I went to then and I, I was like, I couldn't get in the water, couldn't get in. I turned the water on, I couldn't get in the shower. I was terrified. I was just on the ground. I was just crying and just like fucking so broken. And that guy came in and he wrapped his arms around me and he hugged me down there. And I, just, I just remember him like just rubbing me, mm-hmm. just holding me, just telling me it was going to be okay. Like, you're going to be okay, man. Like, you don't have to live this way again if you don't want. Like, you're going to be okay. You're going to get through this, right? Just talking to me. Mm-hmm. And I never felt love like that. You know, we go back to like the very, very beginning where we talked about like, being an only child, right? Not meeting my dad. Like I didn't experience affection, Meh. like experience it. Sure. People gave it to me. I'm not like, but experience it. Like I did in that moment and mm-hmm. something inside of me, I remember looking at him dude, and he was like, I love you. And I believed him though. I didn't feel lovable, no. right? That push pull thing. I believed him, you know? And I believe that he was there to help me for fun and for free. He wasn't making any money. He wasn't. He truly cared. Genuinely. Genuinely cared. Yeah. Like unconditionally. Mm-hmm. And uh, that guy literally picked me up and walked me in the shower and, and fucking washed me down with a washcloth and soap. And I was 100% broken. And I literally believe like that was the point where I was like, I'm going to do what this guy Good. me to do. That's the turning point. You know? And I think a lot of times what I see is that we miss that unconditional love, Mark. Hmm. You know? Um, we miss that point that we're broken. You know? And that... And even like... Even at 19 years sober, right? There's still some brokenness in me. Hmm. Right? That's where the work continues to happen. There's still some brokenness in me. Even with a guy that I work with that's five years sober, mm-hmm. right? And he's acting out. He's doing behaviors that may not align with my moral compass. Do I have compassion for him? Right? He had compassion for the brokenness. Right. Right. And that compassion, that unconditional love, allowed me to trust him, right? So that I could start to begin to take direction. And he started telling me to do things, man. And, and, and coming from no dad, sexually assaulted 12 times by men, like I had no, I mean, if you would have bet on it, you would have bet against it. Right. And that unconditional love and that compassion for another human being changed my life. Hmm. Because that's what we need, man. Yeah. We need it. What we've searched for our whole lives is we need that unconditional love and compassion, and we found it in drugs and alcohol. And you remove that, and now we're broken. Mm -hmm. You know, and in that moment, man, I was like, looking back, I didn't know at the time, in that moment, man, things changed, and I started following that guy. And my life changed. I mean, it's like, I don't know, man, to, to go from there to being a father to a kid that I love more than life, dude. Like, how did that happen? When did you have the kid? I didn't have him. <laughs> well, when did you, you and the person you had the kid with, how long were you sober? 
I, I can't take credit. Lindy would be mad at me if I took credit for that. But um, uh, but I was so I'm 19. I was must have been four years sober. Yeah, and we that's were, probably around the time I met you. Both of us were really active. Yeah. Like we were helping a lot of people. Mm -hmm. You know, we were. I mean, I, I don't know if you can hear from my story right at this point. Is I have commitment issues. <laughs> I have relationship issues, right? Like, you know, the I have I have a malady, man. That I'm I'm maladjusted to life, right? Like, I think that if I get in a relationship, everything's gonna be all right. Mm -hmm. And I get in a relationship, and it, it works for a period of time, but it doesn't make it all right. Mm -hmm. I still have the brokenness, you know. Um, and so we were. I mean, we were in love, like it was all good. And, uh, but my brokenness, um, I thought that if I had this new toy, I would feel okay. Mm -hmm. Right. And so I started cheating on her and holding a secret. And, uh, and in all of the cheating on her, I, she got pregnant. And, um, and now like I hate myself, right? Because I can't like, what am I going to do now? I have this kid come in this world but, and am I going to give him the same life that I had with no father? Hmm. And now I'm going to give him the same life with a broken home. And, uh, yeah. And so basically like one of the girl that I cheated on her with was her best friend. And she went back and made amends to her to let her know that that she did that. Yeah. And so, yeah. So like we, you know, she was pregnant. Like, yeah, she was pregnant, and I made amends. I was, I talked to you know my my mentors, and I made it right. And I was like, I'm willing to do whatever it is, you know, like, and. And so we went to therapy every week. You and her? Yeah. Pregnant. And then she had the kid. And then we went for six months, you know, with the kid. It was like Jerry Springer, dude. But, like, you know, and I, I wanted to make it right, dude. Like, I really wanted to make it right for my family. Like, you know, it wasn't that, you know, the whole the, the whole relationship ended because of my behavior. You know what I mean? It's plain and simple, you know? Now, during – so, when so the, I was four years sober. Four years sober. This is the round. It was around the time I met you. I remember when you first had your kid. Um, the way I met you, you were welcoming. I met you in recovery circles. Mm -hmm. um, I remember you'd always wear a hoodie. Still do. Still do. <laughs> and you just seemed uh, very connected to the recovery community. You were a person that came up and introduced yourself. Like I said, after we got to know each other, we were, we were, you know, I was, I'm a few years older, but we were definitely had similar pasts. Um, and I would see the way that you were of service to people, which was even with all the stuff that you're saying, mm -hmm. the imperfections that were going on uh, personally, which we all, I mean, people don't just yeah. get sober and be like walking saints. Right. Right. You know, my, you know, yeah. we both know each other's history, uh, but a lot of shit happens, but regardless of the fact you always, reach out to the new guy always mm -hmm. or girl. And you have a way about doing that. So what was really cool during that time, a couple of years later when I was actually going to school and stuff, <clears throat> we had the privilege of working together mm -hmm. in an adolescent facility. Right. 
with troubled young individuals, kids. I'm talking like kids. many us's. Yes. Like, but we also got to watch miracles in that time because there was definitely the troubled kids that never got better and probably went on to do other drugs. Then there was kids that were like 15, 16 that stayed sober through that process and and they're still sober to this day. Mm -hmm. There's a handful of them, a yep. good good amount of them, which to me shows me that people can get sober at a very young age and go on to live these beautiful lives. Right. Um, with that said, obviously it's been really cool to watch the type of father that you've become for your kid mm -hmm. because as you often say, and it's evident, we're not just from seeing it on Facebook, but seeing you interacting with your kid, it's like your best friend. Mm -hmm. And uh, how was it like trying to be a dad for him when you never even had a dad? Did you, was it like, you know how to do recovery well, Yeah. but when it comes to dad skills, this is something that you yeah, probably have to acquire like the skills over a period of time. It's interesting because I was terrified. Right. Right. When she was pregnant, I was terrified. Like, how am I going to be a dad? Like, I don't have the. I don't have like the skills. Like I don't know how to be a dad. Now I knew everything I wanted my dad to be for me. Mm -hmm. I knew that. Right. So I knew that I, what I wanted, I was going to give him. And I would try to read all these books, right? Like mm -hmm. how to be a dad, right. you know, what to experience. And right here, remember is Barnes and Nobles. Right. Is it still there? It's still there. Okay. Barnes and Nobles. I was there looking for books. You know what I mean? And I, I, I was, I ended up buying like a, Something else, not a not a dad book, right? And I was in line, and there, you know, they, they try to hustle you with those other things at the end. Yeah. And there's a little book. It said uh, uh, something about being a dad. And so I picked it up and I opened it. And the introduction, very first sheet, it said, uh, "Your innate ability to be a parent will kick in at birth. No, no reason to read this book." <laughs> And so, so I closed it, put it down, and I believed it. That book didn't sell much. Yeah, it, well, maybe they didn't read that part. Right. But I believed it inside. Right. And I think it's about, for me, and I never really thought about this till right now, is I believe that once it's a belief for me, it becomes the truth, right? So you learn as you go? Well, I just believed it, that yeah. your innate ability to be a father will kick in. Mm -hmm. Right. And when I was at the hospital and my son was born, I looked right into the eyes of God. Now, I didn't believe in God at the time. But in that moment, right, it was like this was the most precious thing right. ever in my entire life. I remember holding him. Right. And it was like it was natural. It was just like. Right. But I believe that it was natural because it was a belief that I had. Mm -hmm. Though I was afraid, I now have a belief that my innate ability will kick in. Mm -hmm. If I live in fear without a belief, then it's just fear. Fear, boom, I grab it, and I was terrified, right? They, they say, who wants to clean the first, you know, do the first diaper, you know, the first poop's like tar? I was like, I do. And I was like, whoa, who said that? I don't really <laughs> want to do that. And I did the deal, right? And I did the deal. And they said, circumcise. You had a good dad, go watch a circumcision. And I was like, dude, hell no, I don't want to watch that. But they said you got to do it, and so I was, and I fell asleep, and I missed the appointment. And I was, I was mad that I missed the appointment, mm -hmm. right? So the love for this child started without, without my consent, yeah, so to speak, right? Right. 
And I remember that we drove homeless. He was born here in Laguna Beach at the hospital. Mm -hmm. And we lived right down here at, by Target on the other side of Target. Yes. Dude, I drove like 15 miles an hour with him in the car because I was so scared to get in an accident with this thing, with this little creature. Right. And, you know, I we made a decision that I was going to take care of him. She worked full time. I was going to school to get my KDAC. Well, at the time, I was going to be a therapist, but when he was born, I changed it to my KDAC so I could work. And I, I got to hang out with him every day, infant. And I just fell in love with him. I mean, it's like I didn't know that I had the ability to love another human being on that level. I had no idea. Like I didn't like it's like it's physical change, obviously, in your life. You mm. can't do the things you want to do. Like I got to see how selfish I really was because I wanted to go out and I had to stay with the kid, you know, and I got to really do a lot of spirit, internal spiritual work. Um, you know, and so, but spiritually the change happens. I got more closer to God. I didn't want him to, to hurt. I wanted to protect him. All these things <laughs> naturally started to occur in my life internally. And, uh, yeah, I remember, I remember he would, he would cry and, and I didn't know how to, I didn't know how to be a dad I would call people and that he had he had the hiccups and they would tell me you just wait and one time I, I put him on my head he didn't cry there and so I cruise around all the time because I don't want him to cry and I stood up one day and I was on my then I lifted him on my head and I put his head in a ceiling fan it was spinning oh, spinning hit the kid bam, bam. and my a guy that I work with was right there and he grabbed my kid and I got on my knees and I was like God I don't believe that you exist but I don't know what the fuck to do you know. And uh, all of a sudden, I was like, hey, you should call the doctor. That'd be great. And I called the doctor, and, and nothing happened to him. But I I, and I I, came to, like, believe that I cared more about him, right, another human being than I cared about myself. Mm. So there's, like, a shift internally in me started happening. Um, you know, and, like, I've always been welcoming, like you said, to welcome new yes. people and bring them in. and. I learned that through the recovery community, mm -hmm. but I think that I always had that. You did. Right. Since yeah. I was a kid, like, you know, um, you know, I want to welcome the person that's in the corner. Yeah. The one that does the one, nobody will talk to and they won't talk to no, nobody. They're not going to talk to nobody. That's right. You know, the one that's dying inside. Dying inside. This is what, I, so this is probably one of the longest uh, talks that we've had on this particular show but but it's been the most interesting yeah not just because you are who you are and how long we've known each other but it's powerful and there's one thing i do want to top it off with that we that i want to talk about if you don't mind so obviously you're a fucking miracle because most of the people that are living down on, on skid row or have resorted to that type of lifestyle become kind of like mutants they're just zombified and shot out and they don't ever really come back from the gates of hell so for you to turn it around and go through all your experiences and get to this point where you're this father, you you mentioned a couple times, I didn't believe in God. Do you mind talking about, and I know in recovery, there's a lot of people that get hung up on the God idea. Mm -hmm. They think like, you know, it's like another religious church. They all want to believe in God. And there's people that are atheists and agnostics that I've seen, that you've seen in recovery long term. Mm -hmm. So what what was your turning point, the sh shift in perception where you 
I mean, you speak of God. You said you looked into your kids' eyes and see the eyes of God. What is it that happened to you where you actually started to believe? Hmm. It's kind of a long process of a story, but I think that I always, looking back, like, I knew there was something. Whether it's energy, I never, I never really got down with religion. Right. I just uh, the hypocrisy, and you know, my mom was gay. Um, you know, and automatically, like, you know, so and I couldn't get behind it. You know, um, I couldn't get behind um, wiping out millions of people taking their land, California. Yeah. Right. We took the land of natives, right, in the name of religion. Mm -hmm. And I can't get behind that kind of stuff, you know. But, and, uh, but I, th I knew there was something, right, but I just couldn't. I, was, I always felt in tune to something greater than energetically, right, house music, the music. Uh, so I got sober, and, and I was given a prayer that was, God, I don't believe that you exist. But this old guy tells me that I should pray, and so I, I prayed. Right. I've done what they told me to do in the recovery community because I believed them. Mm. And for me, and I think what I'm just speak for myself, not what I what I believe, but is that I put everything in front of my relationship with God: mm -hmm. work, school, relationships. If I only have that, then I'll be okay on the inside. Gambling, switch addictions. We talk cross addictions and mm -hmm. relationship stuff. And for me, um, living in those character defects, living in the seven deadly sins, if we look at it from a religious standpoint, living within lust and gluttony and greed and all these things, right, come first, which is a priority in order for me to live within this world. Mm -hmm. If I want what I, if I want to be rich, if I want to be financially secure, then I need more money, right? Mm -hmm. And so I put all this stuff, and for me, lust was the big one, man. It was, it was the, you know, I touched on a little bit, and um, and and so I would relationship, relationship, and I'd want a relationship, but I wasn't faithful because the shiny toy wears off, mm -hmm. and I'm afraid to connect with you. Right. I want you to love me so bad, but I push you away. So no one had people love me deeply and I couldn't let them love me. And I was off because I'm afraid to let you love me. So then I'm off, but I don't want to let you go because I love you and I want you, but I'm off. Right. And so this looks like this doesn't look like the behavior is cheating on people. And I'm lost in these old ideas. Um, you know, my mom being very powerful in the in the recovery community, mm -hmm. I always lived in my mom's shadow. I always wanted that from my mom. So I always wanted it. But women have always had power, like, over my desires and who I was. Like, I needed a woman's validation in order for me to live life. Right. And that came from my mom, though I did not know I was living in that. Um, I had this idea that if I had a dad, I'd know how to treat a woman. I wouldn't have to act out like this. Um, and something that really an, an idea that I had was that if you guys in recovery community, like your 
what you thought of me had more power than anything else. So if I help more people, if I was more active, if I was more of service, you would, if I answered all your calls, if I was, you knew that you could count on me. Yeah. Right. That had power. Right. So that was really ultimately my higher power. Mm-hmm. And, and so one more relationship broke because of my behavior and I was going to kill myself because that's the only solution left in my life. Drinking and how long were you sober? Eight with? years. Eight years. Drinking and drugs aren't my problem. Mm-hmm. Or they're not, they are my problem, right? But my thinking is my problem. And my thinking drives me in all these negative behaviors. My thinking drives me that I don't need a God because I'm powerful in my thinking, right? The disease of the mind. Mm-hmm. And so I'm going to kill myself. I'm driving right here, dude, right here, Aliso Viejo. And I'm like, if I get a 100 miles an hour, I'm going to barrel my car in oncoming traffic. And Pacific Park and Aliso Viejo is the intersection, and there's enough cars coming this way, and I'm going to barrel my car in incoming traffic. And I heard a voice in my back seat. I know as God said to me, "You need to call that guy, this guy that I, this this um, he had like thirty something years sober." I called him, and um, the surrender was. He said, "Meet me at Denny's off Alicia," mm. and I took his direction, and I followed him. And I'm a believer that that the surrender is when I take the first direction, right? And um, and my life changed, right? Like I, I went through a process where I had to let go of my prejudices. I can always fight you and tell you why God wasn't real. Mm-hmm. But if you said, Pat, what do you believe? I couldn't tell you. Because I was that little kid that couldn't make decisions for himself. Yeah, I needed your direction and then i can blame you because it didn't work exactly and so i started identified i identified god in my own life i identified i looked at god right god was masculine in my life right Mm -hmm. i feared god god was like the guy in the sky with the robe and the stag i'm testing all of you guys you know it wasn't like that and i had to look for me god had masculine qualities and God also had feminine qualities Mm. and I had to be honest with myself to look at those feminine qualities right right deep down every man woman child is a fundamental idea of God right Mm -hmm. which means God's within me which means I had to look at my own feminine qualities within myself Mm -hmm. right and I had to be okay with that kind of stuff and uh and I identified I identified a God in my life and um and then I had to look at the things that were blocking me from God which was that one thing man, of what you guys, I had to let go of my dependency on what you guys thought of me in the recovery community. And I said a prayer. I said, God, please take away this thing that stands in the way of me having a better relationship with you. And for like three months, man, it was, I would sit up at night, man. And I would just like fucking cuss out God. Like I couldn't let it go. I couldn't let it go. Mm-hmm. And I was in so much internal pain. Um, I was in so much internal pain that I was like, I was suicidal, man. I was going to kill myself from eight and a half to 10 years sober. I was in so much internal pain. I was like, fuck it. Like, dude, if I have to believe in God in order to not feel this pain, then I'm fucking, I'm letting it go. I don't give two fucking shits what you guys think of me anymore. You know, and in and, and, and the last analysis, right, which was in that last analysis, there was no more analyzing. Right. That's where God is found. And in that dark place, man. In my in my apartment, in my apartment right here in Laguna Niguel, man, I came to believe in God. 
Um, and then I made the decision to do, to fucking have a relationship with that power source. And, um, but I really think where the, the amends process of cleaning up, when I'm free of the resentment, I'm free of the fear, and I make the last amends, mm-hmm. right? And I have no more shame, no more guilt, no more resentment. I step into the world of spirit, you know? And, um, and it's a responsibility today on a daily basis to live within the spirit within me. You know what I mean? It's, my, it's a responsibility I have, you know? Because it's here that I feel it. It's here that I feel happiness. It's here I feel sad. It's here where I feel lonely. It's here where I feel fear. It's here where I feel joy. And it's about having that relationship with God within, you know? And mm-hmm. um, my life is phenomenal. Love it. My, I mean, my kid said to me yesterday, he said, Dad, I love you. He said, uh, he goes to his mom's and he said, you know, he said, I'll see you soon, you know? And just something inside of me, man, just like I miss him, you know? And um, it's cool, man. It's uh, I learned how to have relationships from you guys, you know. You know, I've learned how to push you away and let you back in, right? I've learned to and 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 know that that it's my thing, you know. It's my fear, right, that does that, and to be okay with my fear, right? Mm-hmm. That doesn't dictate that I'm a bad person. Just says that I'm afraid, you know. To and um. And that you guys continue to love me unconditionally, which allows me to learn how to love people unconditionally. Mm. Right. And that's, that's a gift, you know, though we have turmoil and have struggles, right. We give each other a gift of some sort, you know, and, um, and I'm grateful for the gifts that you guys continue to give me, you know, so powerful. Thanks. How good it was to have you come out today. Thank you, sir. After this, we go eat. Yeah, let's look at uh, a couple of comments here. I think there was a lot of people that tuned in today. We had Nima. So many. We'll go back over and look at them later on. But yeah, I mean, this is awesome. Oh, you could put them up on the thing? Yeah. Oh, that's cool. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, this is awesome. I appreciate you coming out today. Uh, we had a couple of the homies sitting oh, in here, too, that yeah. came out here from, what is it, Kentucky? Louisville or Louisville? Louisville. Louisville. Appreciate you guys coming out too. Um, much love to everybody that tuned in. It was a great podcast. Thank Truly, you, sir. it was. We went deep today. Thanks. Appreciate. It. Thank you all for tuning in. Much love. Bye.